Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Crawl Space. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Laura Petler. I invite you to listen to part one before proceeding. This is an excellent interview. You don't want to miss the introduction to Dr. Laura Petler. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Crawl Space Pod. Now, we recently saw you on the Lover's Lane murders from the Oxygen Network um, with uh, with our friends Bill and Kristen from Mind Over Murder, and I uh, recently heard you on their podcast as well, uh, speaking about um, that show and really about the crime scene staging. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and about that case? Sure. So I do a lot of work for Oxygen in the true crime space, specifically related to crime scene reconstructions. They call for for me to do certain types of reconstructions and also for staging work because those are my two areas of expertise. I was called for that show late in the game. I wasn't originally slated to be on that show. We shot in Virginia And it was 2019. There are four double homicides involved in the Lover's Lane murder show that they were featuring. And the first couple that was murdered is Kathy Thomas, who is Bill Thomas's sister, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski. And so not only in the Thomas Dowski case, but also in the other four double homicides, I was there on scene to take what we knew about them, about the scenes, which was extremely limited information and do the best that I could to recreate the scene. It's different than reconstruction because reconstruction, as you know, as we just talked about, is when we scientifically reconstruct everything based on all these measurements and stuff. That is not what we did there. What we did there was we recreated the scenes so that Maureen and Lonnie and when Jim was there, the the three of them could work in the scene 
and think and come up with ideas and analyze evidence and do everything that they could. So we brought in cars that were very similar, same make and model, same year, you know, very, very similar to what, what they actually were back in those days. We brought in materials that were consistent with crime scene photos. We did everything that we could to make sure that what we did was the most accurate based on the information we had. We did not have access to the case files. Some of those cases are, my understanding, are with the FBI, and some of the cases are actually with Virginia State Police, and there may be a third agency involved, but um, I was not part of the their war room or anything like that. I was only on scene to to analyze um, all the evidence related to the to the reconstructions that we were doing, and and that's what they were called was reconstructions. But in fact, they were actual recreations to the best of our ability, based on the limited amount of information that we had, which was for the purpose of helping the investigators that were on the show and myself included the four of us come up with um, different ideas for how this might've happened. Each one of them individually. And where does that lead you? So you're, you've come up with the scenarios in which this might've happened. Uh, What do you do with that after you've come up with the best scenario based on your information at hand and, and your, your abilities? The final cut contains, you know, all the different pieces that that oxygen and the EPs felt that, you know, should go into the final cut. So not exactly sure what was all included or what was excluded, but there was lots of discussion where we all had different opinions. I was the one who had the least amount of information. I was not in the war room. I did not see the walls full of all the evidence and stuff that they had. Um, I had case files that, um, that were given to me to review by production. And so my information was limited, but I was on set and watching and listening to the other investigators as they were, as they were investigating and using the reconstructions that we built, there were a lot of ideas that I had and that I came up with, but I personally can't render any kind of an opinion in the matter because I haven't reviewed the case file and I have such a limited amount of information. There were things that I could infer that, for example, like, you know, in serial homicide versus domestic violence homicide, for example, a lot of serial killers, you don't have staging and some you might, but it only would be because they knew the victim Staging is a function of the victim-offender relationship. So if there's no relationship between the victim and the offender, what you could be seeing is um, something else, maybe like a, a signature of some kind. And then in the first cases in Thomas and Dowski, there was just a lot more information. I felt like Bill Thomas had so much information from over the years and he was a direct contact person for me there on set. So I knew more about Kathy and about Becky than I did any of the other people. I do know Joyce Call Canada, who is the sister of Keith Call. And so I do know Joyce and was on, um, I can't remember what show I was on with Joyce last year or maybe the year before. Um, it was a talk show in New York, but I can't, it wasn't Oz, but it was a different show. 
but anyway, um, so I do know Joyce and I know her from CrimeCon. So I know a little bit about Keith and I know a little bit more about um, Robin Edwards as well, but I didn't know as much about the other, the other victims. And so my, my opinions were, were so broad because I really, I really didn't have any except in the cases of Kathy and Becky only because I had so much information from Bill Thomas. Does that help you often when you're looking into any case to know more about the victim and to maybe feel some, not a personal connection, but a relatable connection? I can't call it a relatable connection, but I can tell you that LPA's method, the murder room, is a scientific, multidisciplinary, victim-centered model. So our entire investigation uses the victimology as the basis for every test that we do. So we complete the victimology and then we test the scene against it. So for example, like uh, you see me here, you know, I'm drinking this diet Sprite, Sprite, zero sugar, in fact. Okay. So I drink this, but I, I, so you come in my house, you find me dead. I'm in the living room. I'm on the floor. There's a bow beside me. Okay. There's an arrow beside me. Okay. There's a, uh, there it's, there's a ransacking kind of an issue and there's, you know, a tipped over Fox a taxidermy Fox now on the ground in a million pieces. And you find this can of Sprite beside me, you open the refrigerator, there's Sprite zero in the refrigerator, but then you find a plastic bottle, 20 ounce bottle of Pepsi beside me as well. You guys do not know me. You don't know my house. You guys are crime scene investigators. You're meeting me for the first time dead. You have no idea who I am, what I am, but you know there's a bow beside me, but you're not sure if that goes with me. But as you look around my house, you'll find, oh yeah, that definitely goes with her because there's a whole studio over here on the other side of the house where I have all kinds of arrow making equipment and turkey feathers to fletch arrows and stuff. Okay. So the bow, I'm good with the bow, good with the arrows. Then there's pictures of fox hunting everywhere. Okay. I'm good with the fox being all over the floor and torn up. And I found that in the refrigerator, there's Sprite Zero. And um, then you start talking to people that knew me. And you start telling them what you found at the scene. Well, there's a bow, there's a fox, there's a can of Sprite Zero. And then there's a, a 20 ounce plastic bottle of Pepsi. Immediately, you're going to get a huge response from the people that know me well. They're going to say, oh my God, that bottle of Pepsi is not hers. But you guys don't know that about me until you do victimology. In the same way, if any of you, you know, either of you are found in your home, the people that come in there don't know you. They don't know what you eat. They don't know what you don't eat. They don't know what kind of shampoo you use, what kind of shampoo you will never use. They don't know what you're allergic to. They don't know what you like to drink, what you don't like to drink. They don't know all about that stuff about the crime scene until they do victimology on you. And then once they have that complete picture of who you are, including down to little things like what's in your refrigerator, 
And what's in your bathroom? What's in your shower versus what's not in your shower? Stuff like that. Then they can actually look at the crime scene and look what's present and look what's missing and start determining things. But until you do victimology, you're looking at something just like you'd be looking at anything else that you don't know anything about. And so the victimology is not part of the investigation. It is the investigation. And without it, you cannot, in my opinion, claim to apply critical thinking or analytical thinking to anything. It's impossible. How are you going to do that? What are you testing it against? How is that scientific? It isn't. So it's, Lance, it's, it's a really... It's a really, really important question that you asked. You know, how does victimology play a role, if at all? Victimology should be done within 48 hours after the death of a victim. And that is because typically you're still holding a scene or something like that. And you can actually compare the victimology back to the scene. But, you know, in cases where they clear the scene and call it suicide before there's ever a, a a crime scene investigate, or I'm sorry, a victimological investigation. What are you basing that on? What, because there's an intraoral gunshot wound that makes it a suicide or there's a, you know, gunshot wound to the head or to the neck, or to the chest that makes it suicide. No, that's not what makes a, a death suicide. The victimology and the suicidology plus the physical evidence and the sociological evidence all tied together in stage six of the murder room, that's what determines whether or not it's a suicide or not. That's the true answer to your question of victimology and how important it is. Good stuff. Damn. (laughs) No, it's true. I mean, and obviously I'm very passionate about it because I get heated about it because, you know, obviously most of the investigations that come here are suspect centered. There's been no victimology. They've been cold for God knows how many years we take them. We put them in the murder room. We flip them upside down. We put them, we make them victim centered and the thing solves within however long it solves that quickly. I mean, there's on average, the, a cold case usually has the name of the suspect within the first 10% of the case file statistically. So like, if you haven't figured out that's the suspect, okay, you need to go victim centered. You're probably suspect centered. That's probably why you either don't have a suspect or you have too many, you know, if you have too many, then we need to put your suspects through what we call conflict resolution benefit. And that's a a matrix that, that I built. It's, it's one of ours, part of the murder room stage, stage five in synthesis. So we take all the people who would want a person dead or have some beef with a person, but only the real suspect is going to show up at the end of that matrix. Now, could you have a couple people show up at the end of that matrix? Yes. Now you've got three suspects. It's like, sometimes we get pools of 30. We have 30 suspects come in with the case and there, our job is to whittle that down. So then we come up with three. Then from those three then we use other metrics that are built into the murder room to further dissect even those three from the 30. We, we try to get it right. You know, we don't want to make a mistake. Obviously these are people's lives. There's their deaths, their families and their Liberty that we're talking about here. 
So there's there's no room for error. And uh, I did hear you say something on Mind Over Murder, and it was something something like staging only happens when uh, the killer knows the victim. And, uh, yes. and you were like, you know, if you show up to a murder scene and, and the body's covered, you're like, oh, that that's an easy one. <laughs> um, or at least, you know, the, the killer told you that it was an acquaintance. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, kind of. It, basically, you have the right, the right gist of that. So when sometimes with homicides that are anger-based, the offenders like to cover the eyes of the victim. They don't like the victim to be able to look at them. They don't like to have that, what they feel is kind of a lack of control. So in, in a, one of the ways that they control the crime scene is by covering the eyes of the victim or pointing the eyes of the victim away from the point of entry and exit. So if there's like a, a, a door going into a bedroom and that's the way that the killer gets in and out, you may find that victim against a wall facing the wall. You may find the victim face down. You may find the victim in a bed with covered up with a blanket pulled up over the head. You may find clothes pulled up over the head. You may find a pillow placed over the head, over the, over the face. But somehow a lot of times the eyes are obstructed so that the killer has the ability to look at the victim last and not the other way around. They like to have that control, even the anger, anger based ones, as opposed to the power based ones. And you are right. Staging is a function of the victim-offender relationship. If the offender doesn't know the victim, there's no reason to stage anything. They're not trying to get away with, with murder. It's different than a precautionary act. A precautionary act is when an offender wears gloves or a mask or tie back or strips naked and kills naked or does something like that to prevent his identification as a participant in the death of the victim staging is when the offender is deliberately and purposefully purposefully manipulating and tampering with the evidence whether it is the physical evidence the behavioral evidence the uh sociological evidence to make the death, make the murder of the victim appear to be something else, whether it's a suicide, accident, a homicide in a botched home invasion, like the Jarka case, Kelly Jarka, Isabel Jarka is the victim. And Kelly Jarka was her husband who's convicted in that case. And he tried to make it look like a, a staged, or he tried to, he staged it as a botched home invasion. So staging is a function of the offender trying to take a murder and make it look like a legitimate death that they're not responsible for where a serial killer, they may enact precautionary acts. They may do things like wear gloves, wear, wear other things. Now stagers do that too, but serial killers don't stage because they don't know their victims in cases where, if, um, of course, I'm not talking about serial killers where they know their victims. I'm talking about serial homicide where there is no conflict between the victim and the offender. There is no conflict. Most, um, 100% of staged cases, there is preceding conflict. But you don't have that in, in all kinds of serial cases. Some you probably do, but not all. Of course, in my neck of the woods, you do. Because my serial cases are typically like Betty Newmar, 
right? Where, I mean, my, no, my most notorious serial killer, she's alleged serial killer. We arrested her in 2008 when I solved the case. She has five dead husbands, one dead son, over 52 years. Five dead husbands, one dead son, over 52 years. Nobody ever linked them together until I did in 2007. So, you know, are you telling me that this lady was, you know, unlucky in love? Sounds like, <laughs> sounds like some pre-existing conflicts. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's conflict there. But she can, if she is responsible for the deaths of those victims, Lance, she's still technically a serial killer. Yeah. Right. She's still a serial killer, but she's not the same kind as Ted Bundy, who's just randomly, you know, picking his victims hunting wise in a different capacity. He doesn't have a relationship with Kathy Kleiner. He doesn't have a relationship with any of the other victims. He showed up over Kathy Kleiner's bed and started beating her with a log. Literally. She didn't know who he was. He didn't know who she was. And he had just killed the girl next door in the next room. And he was working on killing her and her roommate. He didn't know them. So there's no reason for him to stage anything. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I wonder about vehicle staging too. Is that kind of the same Mm. thing or slightly different? Oh, no, no. They (laughs) they definitely use vehicles. Um, Offenders who engage in staging behavior, they... A lot of times they, um, for example, you can have a drowned victim, a victim who is literally drowned and then put in a car and then the car's wrecked to make it look like they died in a car accident. And, and it's not a car accident at all. It's actually a drowning death. So then the body gets to the medical examiner's office and the wounds don't make sense because nothing's bleeding because they're already dead when the car crashes. So post-mortem injury look totally different than antemortem or paramortem injury. And the, you know, they're like, why is there water in the lungs? The victim was drowned before they ever put the victim in the car, but they staged it to look like a car accident or, you know, you have gunshot wounds like that, or we have fire cases too, where they, um, stagers use fire to not only destroy evidence, sure, of course, you can use fire and water and break things all day long, but they also use fire to cover up stabbing deaths and gunshot wound deaths and beating deaths. Even though the soft tissue might burn up, you still have to explain all the hammer marks in someone's skull. So sometimes stagers aren't very good they're not very smart. You know, we look at the stuff like, you've got to be kidding me. You really thought this was going to work, but they do that because they get into what's called cognitive overload and they have too many details going on. They can't remember what they're lying about. They can't remember. They can't keep it all straight, you know? So they end up with a big mess on their hands. Cognitive overload. Sounds like every day at Crawl Space Media. Oh gosh, I, I totally know. I mean it for me too. And you know, it's, um, but I mean, literally, you know, that's, that's what it is. They just, they can't keep it all straight. Think about how many people offenders you've listened to that tell however many stories we have one here. She told five different stories of how her husband died 
within the first hour from the 911 call through EMS getting there to then the first responders, then the detectives, and then the coroner. Five different stories. First, it was a heart attack. Then it was suicide. Then it was an accident. And then, then she wasn't there. Then she didn't know what happened. Like just, they just go on and on and on. They just, they, they put bait on a line and they cast it and they see if they're going to get any bites. And if investigators bite, they stick with that bait. And if investigators don't bite, they change baits. Wow. Super fascinating stuff. Um, really, really a, a, a lot that, you know, people don't really think about when they're listening to a podcast about a, a murder or a disappearance or they're reading mm-hmm. a book about it. There's mm-hmm. tireless work that's put into it, which you and your agency breaks down again in such a clear, articulate fashion. We're going to have to have you back on because I, I was scribbling notes until I couldn't write notes anymore. And Aww. the time just flew by. And I can talk about this stuff forever. You know, it's I'm very passionate about it. I'm very, very passionate about scientific victim-centered multidisciplinary death investigation so that we get it right. So that there is critical thinking and you know, a, a very high level of thinking evident in these cases. And we're missing that a lot. And not only are we missing that, but we're missing suspect or victim-centered investigations. So, you know, when I get going on these things, I kind of just go off on these, you know, they're not really rants, but they're, it's so necessary because we have victims who have lost their lives either by a legitimate cause of death or I'm sorry, manner of death, like suicide is obviously a legitimate manner of death. So is accident. But if it's a homicide, um, you know, if we have 45,000 suicides a year, but we have 16 million episodes of depressive disorder in human beings in the United States, 16 million people suffer from depression. Well, if suicide was caused by depression, how many suicides would we have then guys? 16 million. The point is there are 45,000 approximate suicides per year in the U S but there's 16 million major depressive episodes. If depression caused suicide, then you see the numbers, they just don't add up. That's 0.0075%. So if you're just, if you're going to tell me that uh, death is ruled suicide because the person had suicidal ideation and was depressed, okay, that's one piece of the victimology. But everything else better match up with that too. The GSR, the trajectory, the wound path, the firearm, the caliber, the ammunition, the you know the the stippling or the, any of the artifacts on the skin. I mean, there's a bunch of other things in totality that have to go into that. So I don't like when cases when someone's death, you know, you've got somebody die on January first. And on January 2nd, they go to autopsy and then everybody's ruling something suicide. How are you supposed to know that? But that's what kind of cases we work here. Those are the kinds of cases that come here. You said that you think about Sherry Mahone 
every day. I do. I think of it all the time. Do you have any plans to, uh, do you ever do any like maybe unofficial investigations into her disappearance? And do you have any plans to expand on that? Yes. The deaths of Betty Newmar's husbands are a continual open investigation here at LPA. They will always be. Betty Newmar was, she died in, in 2011. And so she was never tried for the solicitation to commit murder of her fourth husband. And then in other cases like Sherry's or Cherry, how, you know, however people pronounce her name. Yes. I've thought a lot about that. And I've thought a lot about it in recent years because I intend to retire in a few more years. So I have thought about it and I have a long list of where prosecution or the case resolution, whether it's civil, whatever the situation is, where our work is finished in those cases. And, and, you know, all of those, if they're killers, you know, all those killers have been sentenced to prison or whatever the results of the adjudication of the cases were. And then I have a short list on my phone and the short list contains the names of several suspects in cases that have not been resolved that I plan to resolve before I retire, if possible. Once I have those cases resolved, then, um, then I'll put it down. And that's hundreds and hundreds of cases later for me. So I think I'm somewhere around 600 death cases now. And death cases at the level of a six-stage method, not just like... I'm not talking about going to crime scenes. I'm not talking about reconstructing. I'm talking about like literal dissertation level analysis on hundreds of cases. Very different than, you know, everyday um, gumshoe kind of work. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.